Amen. So we're diving in here to a new series. We're going to get started in uh, 2 Corinthians. And uh, this, this book's been on my heart for about six months. I've been looking forward to getting into it. And it's always fun to start a new book and to dive into a little bit of the background stuff on what's happening as this letter is being written. This one's a little bit unique. Like each one of Paul's books, they, they're, they're all unique, all a little bit of a different flavor. This one's... Uh, I would say probably the, the most autobiographical of all, of, all his, of all his writings, that's what you find about this one. It's personal. It's got a real personal touch where he, he lays some of his stuff and his life on the line and talks about things that are going on with him. And it's, it's kind of a painful story about Paul and his relationship to this church in Corinth. And so as we get into it, let's, let's just, let me remind you a little bit of the background from the book of Acts, what, it, what had gone on. Acts chapter 17 tells us about Paul's ministry time in Athens. He was in Greece at Mars Hill. And it's a, it's a famous chapter in the, in the book of Acts. And I would say, you know, as much as we like to trumpet this great victory of Acts chapter 17. Really in Athens, Paul saw very little success. Only a few people uh, joined him and put their faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, if I was Paul, it would be a lot of success. But for Paul, it was just scratching the service compared to what usually happened in communities as he would preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he leaves Athens, and in Acts chapter 18, he goes to the city of Corinth, which is, which is just on the, the east side of Greece, and uh, I would say with a fresh commitment to preaching Christ and preaching Christ crucified, uh, he meets great success with the preaching of the gospel in Corinth. In fact, uh, Paul shares a little bit of his heart if we were to jump back to 1 Corinthians, but let me just read it to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He talks about the attitude that he had as he came to Corinth. He says this, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in my weak, in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And so as Paul, resting in the cross, resting in the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not trying to be wise and persuasive with human words of wisdom, just taught Christ. He met great fruit in Corinth. And he stayed there for about a year. It was the second missionary journey. And you might recall that that's where he first met this couple that he spent a lot of time with, Priscilla and Aquila. They were tent makers like he was. He built a relationship with them. And so after this year in Corinth, he packed up and he went back to HQ headquarters, which for him was his home church in Antioch, Syrian Antioch. And then from Syria and Antioch, he launched out again on the third missionary journey. And he arrives in the city of Ephesus. We can read about this in Acts chapter 20. And it's during that time in Ephesus, he spent 18 months there doing ministry, that he wrote the, le the first letter to the Corinthians. Now Corinth was um, an interesting city in ancient days. There's nothing there now. There's nothing but ruins. 
It was known as a transient city, a city of trade, a, a large city. And it was a, a center not only for trade, but it was a center for the worship of the goddess, the Aphrodite. And part of the worship involved uh, sexual rights, actually. In, in, in Corinth, uh, the, there was 10,000 temple prostitutes. If you could just imagine that. I mean, we think of our, our culture being kind of sexually charged. In Corinth, there was 10,000 temple prostitutes who in the evening would come out into the city and, and draw people into the worship of the, the goddess Aphrodite. And so, yeah, I, I would call it a sexually charged city. And you get that sense when you cruise the first letter to the Corinthians, right? You're like, oh, okay. That's why they were so messed up. That's why some of this stuff was translating into the church. There was weird sexual stuff. And, and, and so when Paul writes this first letter to the Corinthians, what he's talking about mainly is issues of, of sanctification and them being called to be saints, to be set apart in their lives to God. The church was full of division. It was full of carnality, worldliness. And you know, it's really when you read the book of first Corinthians that you get a sense of what it means to be a carnal Christian, a worldly Christian, because they were it. There was sexual immorality in the church. And so Paul addressed how you function in marriage. Uh, he, he addressed the proper place of, of, of uh, the role of men and women within the church. Cause that was, Messed up in their church. He talked about the Lord's Supper and spiritual gifts and the supremacy of love and prophecy and tongues. He was teaching this church very practical things about how to function. He gave them proof. When you, you go to the end of 1 Corinthians, he gives them proof about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the Christian belief that we will be raised from the dead. See, the Greeks, because it, it was part of their thinking that infiltrated the church in, in that first century and, and can even infiltrate the church nowadays to separate the idea of body and spirit. See, Greek thinking was, you know, your spirit, your soul is this eternal thing that God has redeemed and your body is just this instrument that you can do whatever you want with and treat however you like and do what, you know, what you want with who you want, whatever. And so in addressing the church in Corinth, Paul was teaching them some Hebrew concepts. And that's this, that you can't separate your soul and your body. God is interested in us as entire whole people, the whole package. Spirit he's interested in, body he's interested in. Our souls are saved and our bodies will be raised from the dead when that day comes. God, God is going to redeem the whole thing. And so you can't separate life into spiritual categories. God in this, but not in this. No, that doesn't work. He was writing to help them with that. God is interested in us as whole people. And so, you know, the basic issues kind of addressed, I would say, in 1 Corinthians is they have to do with maturity and sanctification and sainthood. And at the end of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 16, Paul, Paul says this. He, he, well, not to quote him directly, but he states, so after this, you know, I get done my work here, I'm planning to come to you. I'm going to go through Macedonia and I'm going to make my way back to Corinth. But Acts chapter 20 verse 3 tells us what actually happened. 
Whatever it was, the details aren't given to us, but Paul faced major danger after he faced, he left Ephesus and traveled to Macedonia. And so what happened was he had to turn and go back and he didn't get to make it to Corinth. He skipped out there. And I guess, you know, when you read about it, there's lots of theories about what had happened that, oh, maybe in between this time, there was another letter that Paul wrote and he'd sent Titus. There's, there's all sorts of theories on what had happened. I, and I mean, Lots of them are good, but whatever it was, Paul skipped going to Corinth and there was a real negative reaction from the church. By their perception, uh, Paul skipped out and he didn't follow through on his stated plans. And the charge was this, Paul, you broke your promise. You fickle man that we cannot trust. See, leaders had had risen up within that church and they were taking advantage of this situation and Paul not coming through here to establish their own authority, to question the legitimacy of Paul's ministry and to claim themselves as apostles. And so there's this certain sense in this letter, we're going to see it lots, that Paul just starts to lay his soul bare about how he has done ministry on behalf of the Lord and what ministry is really about as we serve God. He opens wide his heart to this church and to this people who at this point are like knifing him in the back. And so uh, let's check it out. It says this in verse one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Acacia. So first thing Paul does is his introduction is he just uh, inserts some authority right into the start of it. An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. One of the things that Paul was being attacked on, and we're going to see it over and over and over through here, is that they were attacking his apostleship. Was he truly sent by God? And so Paul opens up this with this statement of defense in regards to God's call on his life and his apostleship. Being an apostle was not an act of his own will. Now, you you know, we read the Bible and we'd say, of course, it's not the act of his own will. I mean, who in their right minds would pick that job? You wouldn't. Shipwreck, beaten, vipers, stonings, good times. You don't do that in your own flesh and in your own strength. And so Paul says, look, my call is by the will of God. I didn't take on this apostolic authority on my own. And you know, I I think about that and I could say, could could you say that about your own life? Can you say that about your own life? You know, I am what I am by the will of God. Whatever it is, whatever God has called you into, do you rest in the fact that you're there because God called you? That workplace, that home, that position in life, whatever it is, I'm there by the will of God. And so I'm going to rest in it. Now, you know, if it was me writing this letter after defending the call of God on my life, I, I, I'd deliver some scathing words. <laughs> you know, I probably would address it with something like, you know, you carnal, immature vipers, you sons of... <laughs> No, I don't know how you'd introduce yourself, but Paul does this. He says, I write to you, you saints, with all the saints who are in Keisha. That's incredible. That is the heart of this man in defending himself. 
not, not retaliatory, but he calls and he, he writes to them and he calls them saints. A saint, is a, it's a person acknowledged as holy and virtuous, set apart unto the things of God. You know, in a, a Catholic or an Orthodox church, a, a person is formally recognized or canonized by the church after death. And they, they're made the saint and you can pray prayers of intercession to them. And it's, it's something that's closed off to a very few people. But that's not how the Bible defines a saint. <laughs> Fundamentally, just a, a saint is someone who's separated unto God. Someone who has been Saved. In fact, all of us are saints. We have been consecrated to the purposes of God. And so Paul says, hey, saints. He's reminding them about their identity. No calling them dogs. No calling them vipers. No calling them the spawn of Satan. Just saints. Set apart. Lives called for the purposes of God. But not just, you know, but he's not just writing here, we see to the, the church in Corinth, but to the whole province. So let's jump into verse two. It says this, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. That's always Paul's traditional greeting. I think you find it in, in, in every one of his 13 letters in the new, that we have in the New Testament. Grace and peace, the unmerited favor of God upon your life, the peace of God upon your life, and they just go hand in hand. You can't, you can't have peace unless you first know the grace of God in your life. And so it's this warm-hearted greeting for the apostle, from the apostle as he begins to defend his ministry. Now check out verse 3. He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the first thing that we're going to see that Paul wants to preach to this church as he begins to share some different things is this. Praise changes things. When God's people praise him, something happens. Something happens. And so he says, blessed be God. Praise God because he's God. Because he is God. He is the eternal, uncreated creator of the universe. The sustainer of all things. Praise him. Praise him because he is the father of Jesus Christ. Praise him because our father who is in heaven sent for us his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We have access to the father because of the work of his son, Jesus Christ, by his death and resurrection. And so he says, praise God because he sent his son, Jesus. He's the father of mercies. I like that title for God. The father of mercies. Our father in heaven is the origin and source of all mercy. The generator, the founder, the progenit. I knew I was going to stumble over that word. Progenitor of mercy. You cannot have any comprehension of mercy without God. It's an interesting thought. You, can, you cannot comprehend mercy Outside of the Lord. Mercy is only built into us as human beings because we are made in the image of God. God is merciful. The father of mercies. 
And for us to have a, a heart of compassion, it's, it is sourced and birthed in us by God, our father in heaven. He's the father of mercy. He's also the God of comfort, Paul says. The one true God. God, Theos. The Greek word, which is translated from the Septuagint. When it's translated into Hebrew, you always get one of two words. Well, almost always Elohim or Jehovah. The former indicating God's power and preeminence and the latter indicating his unoriginated, immutable, eternal, self-sustaining existence. He is God. But God of what? God of comfort. That means this. It's the, the comfort is the word percleo. It's seen lots in scripture. Jesus is defined as that word, the Holy Spirit is defined with that word. The Father is defined with that word. It means this, para, beside, and kleo, uh, to call. Hence, God calls us to his side. He is the God of comfort drawing us near to him. You know, it's a great verse in, in Luke chapter 2, verse 25 throw it up there on the screen, Calvin. And it says this. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. I, you know the story from Luke chapter 2. This is the, the account of where Jesus is brought out eight days after his birth to the temple to be dedicated to the Lord. And there... Uh, Luke tells us about this man, Simeon, who was there. He's righteous and a devout man, and he's waiting for consola the consolation of Israel, which means this. He's waiting for the comfort of Israel, for Cleo. The comfort of God to come, which essentially was the coming of the Messiah. And what you need to note about this, what I want to point out about this verse is this, the relationship between waiting for comfort, waiting for consolation, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because look what it says about Simeon. Simeon waited for God's comfort, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. See, that's what happens for God's people when we draw near to him for comfort. He sends his spirit. His spirit comes upon us. And he ministers to us. That is the relationship between waiting for consolation and comfort and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Simeon waited for God's spirit, or waited for God's comfort, and God's spirit was upon him. You know, I would say when we, you know, I'm just thinking about all the different things that I know are happening around here. When we approach God for comfort. Somehow, some way, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is just uniquely released upon God's people. And so Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise him. Praise him. Praise him. Why, why should I praise God? That word blessed? It, it, it means that God, by, by his own attributes, is blessed. He is blessed. 
And God is blessed when you bless him. And when you bless him, when you praise him, he draws you near to himself. That's why the scripture says, enter his gates with thanksgiving. Because we draw near and the ministry of the spirit is released as we praise and give thanks. We are ushered to the side of the Lord. I had, you know, Trish was supposed to lead worship yesterday or today, this morning. And uh, she's also supposed to sing back up or with the choir with Barbara Streisand tomorrow night at Roger's place. <laughs> Lucky her, eh? And, uh, and so Saturday morning, she woke up with uh, laryngitis. And the scramble was on. We got Marcus and the boys to take over again this week. And um, we'll pray for Trish this morning too. But there, you know, as I was thinking about, oh, just this yesterday, this song came came to mind. Uh, it's that old Kevin Prosh song. It says, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, run and not grow weary, walk and not faint. They that wait on the Lord renew their strength. You know, it's right. It's, it's such a concept that we, we forget that God, as we draw near to him, he brings us to himself and his spirit comforts us with his presence. Verse three again, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort we ourselves are comforted by God. You know, the idea behind comfort is way more than just the soother. You know, you remember when your kids were little and you just put the plug in their mouth and it just, boy, that was easy. My daughter, <laughs> with her soothers, you know, she's the baby of the family, and so they get away with certain things that you wouldn't have done with your first ones. But, you know, I just remember we put her to bed, and we put the plug in the mouth, but that wasn't good enough for her. She'd two-fist, man, like three soothers in each hand and one in the mouth, so that should she roll over anywhere in the night, there was a soother somewhere to be found. It was like this entertaining thing that would just kill you. You'd be laughing. She'd have a soother in her mouth and, and two in her hands and there's one on the floor and she wants that one too. But you know, God's comfort is more than just two fisting some soothers into our mouths. God's, com God's comfort is this idea of him strengthening us and helping us and making us strong. Literally, he makes us brave in the face of affliction as he draws us near to himself. You know, Paul knew what it was like to be afflicted. To have his life go through the olive press. To be squashed. Many days, Paul faced the reality that he could be dead the next day. The ship might go down. He might be stoned. Beaten. His enemies were many and his enemies were cruel, you see, in the, in the accounts of the scripture. But there's something about pressing, you know. When you press an olive, it, it brings out the oil. And the more it's refined, the purer the oil. And it's like God, who is the God of comfort, wants to bring out the good stuff in our lives. And it's hard to understand. But he does it through pressing. Through affliction. And yet at the same time, our father is the God of comfort, 
Of course, we know the Holy Spirit is our comforter, but Jesus is also our paraclete, our helper, our comforter. Hebrews 2.18 says, because, because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help, comfort those who are being tempted. See, everything has a purpose. That's what Paul is saying here. Even affliction. That we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction, he says, with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. Strange to think that one of the great purposes in God comforting us is that, that we could bring comfort to others. That we would be able, able, made able by God. That we would have power and virtue and gifting in ourselves from God to help others. You know, I would ask you, do, do we have to be afflicted, afflicted to, to comfort others? And I would say, I guess, maybe yes and no. You know, there's a sense that when you go through the stuff, the tough stuff in life, um, when you go through experiences and different things, God gives you new abilities and resources to help others that are going through such things. But there's also this ministry of the Holy Spirit that can come upon our lives where we can also minister to the afflicted by what God can do through our lives as we just minister God's grace and his love and share burdens and partner in prayer. And God can comfort the afflicted. You know, often God's people don't receive comfort because you know, God wants to give comfort through other people. And pride often keeps us as Christians from revealing our needs. Pride often keeps us so that we never receive comfort through the body because we don't share what we're going through. You know, affliction and carrying one another's burdens is an important ministry of the body of Christ. You know, uh, to watch Brian would go through what Brian's been going through with cancer has been devastating as his friends. And I know you think that, but there's been a ministry of the body that God has allowed as we could pray for him and lift him up. Something that only the body of Christ could do and we could have never had that chance to participate had he just been quiet about what was going on in his life and we never knew. See, we comfort one another. You know, it's been said before, God can, can use a person greatly, he must hurt that person deeply. Have you ever heard that? Tozer said that. Lots of famous people have said such lines. And I would ask why, you know, is God cruel? Is that who God is? Is he cruel? Does God enjoy seeing his people in pain? See, the issue though is not cruelty, the issue is ministry. That's what Paul's talking about here. It's going to be the constant theme as we go through. He's going to talk about these different things, but he's going to show you. Hey, hey, this is about ministry. This is about the gospel. This is about the advance of the kingdom of God. See, the issue is ministry, and there are two essentials in ministry. They're this, compassion for people and confidence in God. Compassion for people and confidence in God. See, you know, God puts us in situations and tribulations and hard places and tough times in order that we would develop compassionate hearts for people. 
for other people who are also experiencing difficulties. And so ministry always involves compassion for people. But the second part of ministry is this, is that it always needs to involve confidence in God. One who ministers must be able to say, God is good. I know you're going through this, but God is good and he will deliver you. You know, you think about Paul and you look at his life and there's, there's incredible stories from the book of Acts. One of the stories that blows my mind is that story of the shipwreck. You know, he's in prison. He's traveling from Jerusalem. He's being taken, or from Caesarea, he's being taken to Rome. And you know the story, they got caught in that terrible storm and Paul's afraid. He's definitely afraid. You can draw that from the story. The men are afraid. They've thrown everything overboard. They think the ship's going down. They're getting ready to kill the prisoners. And the Lord, the angel of the Lord speaks to Paul in the night and just gives him words of comfort that God is going to bring them through and they will be sustained and not a life will be lost. And so Paul gets through the storm and shipwrecked on the beach. What does the guy do? What does he do? Well, he senses that God is in control of the situation. And so right away, he goes to work serving people. I'll get brush and I'll get a fire going. I'll serve these wet soldiers and prisoners. And you know the story. What happens when he picks up the brush to serve people who are wet and cold? The viper bites him. More affliction. More affliction comes as he tries to serve in the, in the name of God, I would say. But the beauty of it is, is what does he do? He shakes the viper off into the fire. And you know, there's just something. When you set your heart to serve God and to be compassionate towards people, the reality is, is there'll be viper bites. But the beauty of it is this, is your confidence and as you, as you just confident in the Lord, you shake them off into the fire. Now, you know, you could, you could choose to, to be left out in doing ministry. But the snake still comes. I mean, think of the story in the Garden of Eden. I mean, either way, the snake is coming. Satan is coming and he's trying to rob you. Whether he's robbing you of the truth of God's word like he did Adam and Adam and Eve or whether he is trying to attack you in Paul's ministry in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. But God, as we serve him, as we set our heart to serve him, he, he takes our miseries and he, he turns them into something beautiful for the glory of his name. Verse five says this, for as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. You know, Paul lived a life full of sufferings, beatings, you know, like we were saying, stone, stone, shipwreck, snake bitten, robbers, danger from his own countrymen, danger from Gentiles, dangers at sea, danger in the wilderness, danger from wild beasts, hunger, thirst, cold. He said, even nakedness. I've even known nakedness. Yet he knew that really all his sufferings were really the sufferings of Christ. That's what he says here. When you suffer for Christ, the reality is, is Jesus is near. He is not distant. He is not God far away. When you suffer, he is right there present with you. He comforted, the Lord comforted Paul in his sufferings and he will comfort us in our sufferings as well. I mean, we know that Jesus told his disciples 
They could count on, on suffering. They could bank on it. But he also said, but you can also count on the comfort of God. And we know that, that God may allow situations in our lives where the only place we can find comfort is in the presence of Jesus Christ. You know, often I think, man, if my circumstances would just change, <laughs> you know, that's our human reaction all the time. You know, well, if I only had a different job, that would fix it. If I only had a different spouse, yeah, should have had a different spouse, you know. If only I had gone to the doctor sooner. If only, if only I lived in a different community. If only I had more money. If only I could win the 649, right? I mean, that's, that's all of us. If only I could win the 649. But look, God wants to comfort you in your difficult circumstances, and he wants to do it through Jesus Christ. It's not about circumstance. It's about looking to the Lord in the midst of situations. Jesus, Jesus said to his disciples, in this world you will have tribula tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Verse 6 says, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to grasp this. Can, it can be hard to grasp this, that sometimes, sometimes in the life of faith, it's hard to see beyond yourself. You know, that's why we hope for a change in circumstance. It's hard to see beyond ourselves at different times. But my salvation, your salvation, is not the end of God's work with you. We talked about last week being instruments. We are instruments. And salvation is not the ceasing of God's work in your life. That's the start. That's like just entrance into the kingdom. And we are called to be salt and light. And you know, I love the positive image of salt light. Oh yeah, that's great. I get to preserve the world and be light. And that's the role of the church. But God also uses the suffering of his people for them to be salt and light. And it's hard to grasp that because sometimes we have a hard time seeing beyond ourselves. But when we suffer, God is at work for our comfort and for the salvation of other people. Always. How does that work? Well, you know, a suffering brought Paul closer to God. As he was made to rely more on God and God alone, he became a more effective minister. He became more compassionate for people and he became more confident in the work of God. He was more usable for the ministry as he was afflicted. Verse 7 says, Our hope for you is unshaken. Paul was confident in the Lord. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Now, Calvin said this, he said, We have not been brought into real submission until we have been laid low by the crushing hand of God. Isn't that great? Does that encourage you? <laughs> Suffering is promised, but the encouragement is this. So is comfort. Comfort is promise. So take hope in your suffering and look for God's comfort. Verse 8 and 9 says, for, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. 
For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. The price of ministry. The price. He says, I, I don't want you to be ignorant. I, I, I don't want you to be unaware. <laughs> we felt like we had received the electric chair. I mean, again, we, we don't know what Paul's experience in Asia exactly was. It would be simply speculation to guess, but it was bad. It was bad to the point that he felt the burden so much that he despaired of, of life itself. You ever got to that point where you despair of life itself? I don't want to live. That's a dark place. It's a dark place to be so beyond your strength that you come to the end of your rope. To feel the sentence of death. The idea here is, is that it was within him. It wasn't just a pressure on the outside, but it, it had gripped his heart. There was discouragement and despair and depression. He had been gripped, inwardly defeated. But in that, God always wants to work. Always, because God is good. You know, it reminds me of the story of Jacob. Remember when Jacob wrestled with God? And you know the story of Jacob. He was a, a swindler, a cheat, a deceiver, a liar. I mean, you could go back through the book of Genesis and just walk through his story and watch how he cheated his brother and um, lied to his father and slipped away and then was deceived by his father-in-law. His life was just... As much as God was in there and, and working, there was a lot of character flaws in this man, Jacob. And as you know from his story, finally God called him to, to go back to the land of his fathers. And as he journeyed there, coming back to Israel in fear of his brother Esau, he sent all his herds and his camels and his donkeys and his sheep out ahead and his servants and his, his wives and his children and there he, he came, that, that last man behind all these different things, full of fear. And in the wilderness, while he was alone, Genesis tells us that he wrestled with God. He wrestled with God. You know, we're, we're in this wrestling match with God, aren't we? Where he's like, we're needing to learn to submit, to follow him. And in that match... God finally touched Jacob's socket, his hip socket, and it came out of joint. You ever had a, have you ever had a joint come out of its... I never have, but I work with this youth leader, like one of those guys that would intern with us when we were in Surrey, and he was always, his shoulder would pop out of its socket, and it would like hang there. He'd be like, oh, oh, put that thing, you know, we'd be at the pool with the youth group playing basketball, and he'd be like, ah! my shoulder and then he'd go to the side and jam the thing back in you're like oh but you'd watch the pain that would go on in this guy he, he's an awesome guy my buddy Joel and uh, he, he was an animal when it came to youth group but this shoulder would come out of its socket but here's Jacob he's wrestling with God and God touches him in the hip and his hip comes out of its socket but Jacob continued to wrestle and he said I won't let you go until you bless me it's kind of a confusing story when we read it with our cultural thinking and stuff. It doesn't make sense. But in the Hebrew culture, the idea is this. 
The lesser always is blessed by the greater. And so for Jacob to make that statement, I will not let you go until you bless me was his tap. Uncle. (laughs) Boy, my boys like to wrestle. Eli, I could pull his arms out of his socket and he will not tap for nothing, man. For nothing. His brother, on the other hand, uncle, 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 uncle. (laughs) This was Jacob's uncle. And God had to hurt him so that he would tap. That's the picture. And Jacob walked the rest of his life with a limp, but he walked as a blessed man. He walked with the favor and grace of God on his life in a new way as he tapped. God gave him a new name in that whole story. The name Israel, which means he, he wrestled with God and with man and he overcame. But how did Jacob overcome? Jacob's victory was in admitting defeat. That's the crazy, that's where his victory happened. The victory came when he tapped out. God, I give up. Bless me. And he walked with a limp, but God blessed him. And his name and his character was changed. And his life became a blessing to those around him. Oh, Paul, Paul says this again. Look at verse 8 and 9. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of our affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But verse 9 continues and Paul says this, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Praise his name. Paul says this, the purpose of the electric chair was my reliance on God. My resurrection from the dead. You know, Paul said this in Philippians chapter 3 verse 10. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection that I, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. See a greater reliance on God is what every one of us needs, right? I mean, we want that. We want our lives to be thrown upon the cross more and more relying on the strength of our savior. You know, the the word of God tells us that the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in us. But if we're to know the power of the resurrection, it only happens when we share in the suffering, the suffering of Christ. And we become like him. We become like him in his death. Verse 10 says, "He, he delivered us from such deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. I texted those verses to Will yesterday. We'd been texting back and forth for like 24 hours through the night, all sorts of stuff as he was just sharing what was was going on. So they don't know what's going on. This is how they're going to try dialysis. They might do this. They do this. And finally, I'm like, dude, let's cut to the chase. How are you? And he said, I'm confused and I'm scared. That was his text. I thought, holy smokes, that is an honest person. Just putting it on the line. I'm confused and I'm scared. And I texted these verses to him. 1 Corinthians 9 and 10. Listen to them again. 
Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. If I had my phone in my hands, I could read you the text that he sent me back. He says, laugh out loud. Does that mean I'm going to (laughs) die? I said, laugh out loud. No, it means God is going to deliver you. God is going to deliver you. See, God is working, Paul says there, in our past and in our present and in our future. He has delivered us. He will deliver us. And he will deliver us again. He is faithful. And that was Paul's confidence in the Lord in the face of suffering. And so he says, we learn to set our hope on him. Now check out how Paul says we can help one another in the midst of suffering. Verse 11. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. You know, the most powerful way that God ministers comfort through the body of Christ to another is through the ministry of prayer, through the ministry of intercession. You know, Paul credited the effectiveness of his ministry to the prayers of God's people. He said, you help me by, my, by your prayers. You know, I would say that's why it's important that we gather for the hour as a church. Gather in prayer Wednesday nights at 7. We, we call it amongst our leadership the most important hour of the week. The hour of prayer. It's not dynamic. Most weeks won't blow your socks off. Once in a while it does. But God meets us. And the church is supported and lifted up. And so is this community as God's people pray. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is unleashed as God's people pray. The comfort and support of God comes as God's people pray. And I would say I I am 100% convinced that God has sustained and protected marriages in this church because of prayer. I would say with 100% conviction that God has provided for our church financially because of prayer. Or that, that one, with 100% conviction that salvations have happened here because God's people pray. Or that, that there has been works and, and miracles and healings that we, we've never even seen because God just did it before we knew the problem was there because God's people prayed. Because God's people prayed. There are innumerable, I mean, we could just go on and on. We could have testimony time right now. As I was prepping this message, I thought, well, I could stop right there and just do testimonies and shut her down that way. We could just do testimonies about the innumerable blessings that have gone on in this body of faith that we had no idea about. Things have gone on in my life that you don't know about. Things that have gone on in your life that I don't know about because God's people prayed. And so we're called, Paul says, partner with me. Partner with the Holy Spirit in the ministry of comfort and do it through intercession. Pray for God's people. Well, as we know, there's going to be lots of accusations against Paul. And one of the things that he's defending himself about is that he's unreliable, that they called him fickle. That was their accusation against him. He's a plan changer. He says this and he doesn't follow through. 
And so he says this in verse 12 through 14. Oh, it's getting late. Sorry, guys. I'll wrap it up quick. For our boast is this. We're not going through the whole chapter. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so towards you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope that you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of the Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we have boasted of you. Paul says this, listen, I know you're making accusations against me, Corinthian church, but I can tell you the witness of my conscience is this. However misconstrued, however misconceived, your, your, whatever your ideas of me are, I can say that I have a clear conscience before God. I, I, I live in this world, he says, with simplicity and with godly sincerity. That's what I seek to practice. You know, we've all been on both sides of an experience like Paul. You know, have you ever had someone question your intentions? We all have. We've all questioned the intentions of other people or question uh, or been questioned. You know, had somebody say, well, what did you really mean by that? <laughs> well, I know you said that, but what did you really mean? What, were the hid- what was the hidden meaning tucked in there? Can I take those words at face value or is there a hidden message? Ever felt like that? Ever been accused of that? You know, there's every man's nightmare. I was just thinking about it. You know, it's like, does this dress make me look fat? Great. This is like lose-lose, right? It's like, no, you're lying. <laughs> yes, you're such a jerk. You know, like, what's the hidden meaning behind the, behind the message, you know? And Paul says this, look, I'm just a simple man. <laughs> when I said supper was good, it really was good. <laughs> I didn't want Indian when you made Mexican or whatever, okay? My marriage is wonderful. I just thought it was a funny application. But Paul says, look, I'm a simple man. I'm not smart enough to weave double meanings into everything that I say. That's not what I'm about. I like to practice simplicity, he says. That's what my conscience teaches me. I like to practice godly sincerity in my speech. He says, man... I'm relying on God's grace and I like to extend God's grace to other people. You know, look, look, this is Paul. Look, you think, you think I use double speak, but you should know I don't have a hidden agenda with you, Corinthian church. In fact, he says, I boast about you. I boast about you. I boast in that sexually charged, idolatrous city that where you live, God is carving out a powerful work. You know, I boast that you love the things of the Spirit and that you want to be filled with the Spirit and function in the gifts of the Spirit. I boast about you. Oh, I boast that you're not perfect, but I boast that God is at work in you. And he says, my hope is that you'd boast back about me. Oh, that Paul, you should hear him preach. Do you know the things he's endured for Jesus? He's a man of God. I, you know, I want him to be my mentor. What, whatever it is. He says, I, I hope, like I boast about you that you'd boast about me. And I would say this in church, this is where I want, want to wrap up. You know, we should be able to trust one another's intentions towards each other. But for that to be so, we need to have the character of Paul. As individuals, our lives need to be 
marked with simplicity as we live in this world. That means straightforwardness, ease. And the reality is, is, you know, yes, people have agendas, but you need to let your agenda go when you're a part of the body. Let it go. Don't complicate things. Be people of simplicity. Be people of godly sincerity. Be servants. Speak and act with godly sincerity. Free yourself from pretense and deceit and hypocrisy. And free yourself from false facades and, and trying to make things appear as, they, as though they are not. Things that are as though they are not. Practice grace. Freely you received. Freely give. I invite Marcus to come on up here, Marcus and Jerry. And, and this morning, I just wanted to close with this. You know, I just, I just thought this morning, there are people here who need prayer. There are people here who need prayer. And, and, and here's the thing. This morning, I want to give you the free. I mean, we always try to be authentic and real and stuff. But I want to say this to you this morning. You don't need to pretend. This morning, I want to give you the freedom to drop pretense. Are, are, are things going on in your lives that you, you just simply need prayer and need to be upheld by the people of God, by the body, to be interceded for and experience the comfort of God? See, we want to be a church that ministers the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll leave it to other churches to be cops. They can be cops. We want grace. We want broken people to find healing in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we found grace. And we found forgiveness in the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, sent by His Father, the God of mercies and the God of comfort. And He deserves our praise. And he deserves to be blessed. And as we do it, he'll draw us near to him and he'll unleash the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I want to just read to you through to the end of the chapter and we'll pick it up next week at verse 15. But he says this, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I, do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no. But in him it always is yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him we utter our amen to the glory of God. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work for your joy. We work for your joy for you to stand firm in the faith. This morning, if you just like prayer, I'm just going to ask you to stand right where you are. You got stuff going on. You just say, I need prayer. I need intercession from God's people. Stand. And then I'm going to ask people around you just to gather around you and just pray for you. Let the body minister to you. Be transparent with one another.
So let's do that. There's people standing. I ask you just to gather around them and pray for them. Lay hands on them, all right? Lord, I thank you this morning that you've given us gifts so that we might give gifts to men. It says that in your word. Lord, you've given us gifts of the Spirit. Your Holy Spirit is upon us. And Lord, I thank you that we can bear one another's burdens, that we can share them, that we can lift one another up in prayer. And we know, Lord, we know with confidence that your spirit works as we do so. Lord, we know with confidence that you will draw us to your side. And so this morning, as just these different prayer groups happen around this space, Lord, I pray, God, that you would strengthen. I pray, God, that you would encourage. I pray, Lord, that you would heal. I pray, God, that there would be a release of the gifts of your spirit. I pray, God, that the ministry of your spirit would happen in each of those little circles, Lord, and upon our lives. Father in heaven, we praise you this morning because you are our God and Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're the God of mercy, the God of comfort. Lord, we know that comfort and mercy has its, its origin in you. And so you we come this morning, Lord, and we pray that you administer your comfort. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. the captives free the same love that opened eyes to see is calling us all by name you are calling us all by name same God that spread the heavens wide same God that was crucified is calling us all by name you are calling us all by name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. You take the faithless, you are the Sabbath, and speak the words. You are mine. You call the cynic and the proud. Come to me now, the same love that spread the captives free, the same love that opened eyes to see, is calling us all by name. You are calling us all by name. The same God that spread the heavens wide, the same God that was crucified, is calling us all by name. You are calling us all by name. 
Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. You're calling, you're calling us to the cross. You're calling, you're calling, you're calling us to the cross. You're calling, you're calling, you're calling.